one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. You're listening to Luke's English podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the podcast. I hope you're fine. I hope you're happy. I hope you're nice and comfortable wherever you are listening to this. I understand that some of you may be listening to this on the way to work. Sorry about that. Some of you might be listening to it on the way back from work. Good for you. Uh, Some of you might be listening in some other completely different scenario. But whoever you are, whatever you are, uh, wherever you are, whichever um, sort of situation you find yourself in, uh, whichever part of the world you're living in at this particular moment in time, uh, welcome to another edition of Luke's English Podcast. Here is another episode about Monty Python's Flying Circus. And in this one, we're going to be covering some very interesting topics, such as medieval history, old myths and legends and folklore, the British monarchy, Marxism, and radical politics. In terms of language, we're going to be looking at some old-fashioned formal poetic language, some political vocabulary, and also some intonation and sentence stress. And we'll be doing all of that while understanding and hopefully enjoying a funny scene from a classic British comedy film. So you really are getting everything in this episode. You're getting everything Well, maybe not everything. I mean, obviously, I can't give you absolutely everything. Um, For example, I'm not giving you an elephant, for example. Um, uh, Not that you would want an elephant. I mean, do you want an elephant? Why would anyone actually want an elephant? I mean, I'm sure there are some people out there in the world who, you know, definitely want elephants. You know, maybe they're just like, oh, maybe one day I'll get an elephant. Um, I'm sure it's the case in some countries where elephant, you know, an elephant would be a very valuable thing to have. But for me, I don't know what I would do with an elephant if someone gave me one. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, you know, I'm going to give you everything with this episode, even an, an, 17 elephants. It's like, here you are. Here are 17 elephants. Oh, God. Oh, what are we going to do with them? Where are we going to put them? You know, it would be a disaster, wouldn't it? So don't worry, I'm not going to give you an elephant in this episode, but I am going to give you a bunch of other useful stuff specifically designed to help you not only improve your English, but also enjoy doing it at the same time. That's the aim. Um, So um, a lot of this, a lot of the things I'm saying in this episode are transcribed at teacherluke.co.uk and if you just find this episode on the website you'll also be able to see for example a video of the um, the the sketch that I'll be playing to you today you'll also see a script for that sketch and some more information definitions of vocabulary and other things that will support you in your uh, quest to um, learn English okay Good. Right. So um, I think it's probably time to uh, to get started then, isn't it? All right. Yeah. Good. Let's get started. That was quite loud. 
wasn't it? That was a little bit loud. I hope you don't mind. Uh, I, I may have uh, blown your 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 head off with that one. Playing it there through the through my headphones, that was quite loud. But I might find a way of reducing the volume of that in post production. Yes, uh, we're getting more and more professional here at Luke's English Podcast, and I'm even doing post production. Yeah, pre production, production, and then post production. Yeah, all the different types of production. Um, so last time um, I did a British comedy episode. Um, it was an episode about Monty Python, and we we looked at a sketch from their TV show. Uh, it was the dead parrot sketch. But there are many, many more sketches which I hope to come back to in the future. There are loads of great sketches from their TV show which I'd like to talk about in the future. But in this episode, I'm going to focus on scenes. Uh, in fact, I'm just going to focus on one scene um, from their first major feature film, which is called Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Um, I did mention it in my last episode about um, Monty Python. At this point, before I go any further, I would just like to say, I'd like to remind you that you should consider purchasing um, Monty Python DVDs, Monty Python CDs, uh, Monty Python audio and video downloads, which you can get on iTunes and things like that. Now, I'm not working for Monty Python, but I just think that considering I'm going to play uh, part of the audio from one of their films, I think that I owe it to them to try and plug some of their stuff. Now, I'm not just doing that for contractual or or legal purposes. I also genuinely believe that Monty Python's stuff is great value, and so you should go out and, and, and uh, check it out. You can get... DVDs and CDs on Amazon and other places. You can download all their films and and all their CDs from iTunes and from other places too. You can even now buy tickets, I think, to see their live uh, shows. Um, So you can check out www.montypythonlive.com if you want more information about um, Monty Python stuff that you can can get now. Okay? Um, Right, so... Um, let's let's go. So, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Let me just tell you a little bit about the film before we focus on one of the sketches and all the language and all the concepts that go along with it. So, uh, when when was it made? Who directed it? And all that kind of stuff. Well, it was made in 1975, so that's uh, quite a long time ago now. God, that's like uh, nearly 40 years ago. But it's still considered to be one of the kind of great films, uh, one of the great British comedies. People still vote for it in, you know, these sort of magazines, like movie magazines. They do these surveys to work out people's favourite comedy films. Well, this is one of the ones that people often refer to as their favourite British comedies. All right. Um, It was written by all of the Monty Python team. But it was directed by Terry Gilliam and Terry Jones. That's two of the guys from the Monty Python group. Um, the two Terrys were actually quite controlling and ambitious guys. And they decided that they wanted to be in charge of the film. And in fact, during the production, I think they agreed that the film could be directed by anyone called Terry. I think that was the rule. Like, this film can be directed by anyone called Terry. So that limited it to just Terry Gilliam and Terry Jones. That was an effort for them to just try and keep control of the film. Um, Terry Gilliam, you know, went on to make Hollywood films like Twelve Monkeys and and other stuff. He's a great director. Uh, And you can see it. You can see the effect of having these guys work on the film. They've got a real sense of sort of, um, you know, visual... um, 
what's the what's the word for it? Um, they've got a dynamic visual sense, and they they shoot pictures of the British countryside in with lots of smoke and lots of atmosphere. It's very beautiful and atmospheric film, as well as being very funny. Uh, what's it about? Well, it's about King Arthur, uh, who is a kind of mythical uh, king from British history. Um, and this film is about King Arthur's search for the Holy Grail. Um, it's set in the 10th century, that's the Middle Ages, or the Dark Ages, as it's sometimes called, uh, which was a time of mystery and legend. It's a time when we don't, we don't know that much about this period in, in British history. And so there are lots of tales, lots of stories and folklore that come from this period and, and the period before. Um, King Arthur, let me tell you a little bit about King Arthur to give you some context. Um, he is a legendary king of Britain. Um, the legend of Arthur is a story which has been told for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, the legend of Arthur dates back to the 5th and 6th centuries. Uh, that's like, for example, 400 to 500 uh AD that's uh, 400 to 500 after uh, after the the life of Christ uh, um, so 400 AD to 600 AD the f- the 5th and 6th centuries um, and the story of Arthur has been told many 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 times since then including this film for example which is a sort of uh, a parody of the history of Arthur um, historians disagree about whether Arthur really existed or not um, but uh, in the stories, Arthur is said to be a kind of magical leader who defended Britain against real and supernatural enemies. He carried a magical sword called Excalibur. So it's a bit like the kind of Lord of the Rings stories or Game of Thrones, that kind of stuff. Um, imagine like castles and knights on horseback and magical swords and all that kind of thing. Um, so yes, Arthur carried a magical sword, which was called Excalibur, you know, a sword, ching, ching, ching sword. So Arthur had a magical sword named Excalibur, which was given to him by a mysterious spirit known as the Lady of the Lake. Um, the Lady of the Lake is an important figure in the Arthurian legend. She's a kind of magical woman who got her powers. She got magical powers from the wizard Merlin. So this is these are old stories, and I'm not going to go into them in much detail now. But um, the Lady of the Lake is a it's, she's a bit like Galadriel from the Lord of the Rings stories. If you've seen Lord of the Rings, you know there's that um, sort of uh, the the elf woman uh, called Galadriel. So anyway, the Lady of the Lake is is a bit like that kind of character in 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 Arthur's story. So anyway, in the story, this lady emerges from a lake. Um, holding Excalibur in her hand and she presents the sword to Arthur and in that moment she chooses him as the rightful leader of the Britons. That's what happens in the story. Um, So, yeah, uh, Arthur became the king of the Britons and the sort of divine leader of the, the country because a woman gave him a sword. Now, I know it's hardly a democratic way to choose the executive commander of Britain, but that's just how things were done back in the 5th century, okay? So the grail in this story, the Holy Grail, is another aspect of the Arthurian legend. And apparently this grail, uh, it's it's like a cup, basically. A grail is a sort of cup. Uh, And apparently this grail once carried the blood of Jesus 
and it was sent by Joseph to Britain where it would then be protected, all right? That's part of the legend, that this holy cup was used to collect some of the blood uh, uh, of, of Jesus, and then it was sent to Britain to be protected. Now, perhaps this is true, perhaps this is just a myth, but the grail is still a very potent symbol in British folklore, either as a connection to Jesus in the sort of Christian faith, or as just a magical cup which can give magical powers to whoever drinks from it in the you know in in more ancient even pre predating christian stories i imagine it's the same cup it's the same holy grail that you see in the indiana jones movie um indiana jones and the last crusade which is the third uh, indiana jones film so that also involves the holy grail same thing same cup okay so what happens in the film well basically arthur is sent on a mission by God to find the Holy Grail. He's given a mission by God. I think I'm going to play that moment in the film to you now. This is the moment where Arthur is riding through the countryside and suddenly in the in the sky he's visited by God. All right? God appears in the clouds and speaks directly to Arthur giving him his mission. Right now, before you listen to this, you should understand that Monty Python's Flying Circus and the Monty Python team, they mock everything. They make fun of absolutely everything. All right. And that includes religion. All right. They make fun of religion in, in the film. Now, you might be a religious person. I don't mean to offend you or anything. It's, it's meant to be just for fun. But some people have found Monty Python's work to be um, a little bit uh, controversial because of the way in which they make fun of religion. But um, I'm going to play it to you now anyway. Uh, this is um, King Arthur um, being visited by God, um, and God then gives Arthur his quest, which is the quest to find the Holy Grail, and you can hear it now. King of the Britons. Oh, don't grovel. One thing I can't stand, it's people groveling. Sorry. And don't apologize. Every time I try to talk to someone, it's sorry this and forgive me that and I'm not worthy. What are you doing now? I'm averting my eyes, oh Lord. Well, don't. It's like those miserable psalms. They're so depressing. Now knock it off. Yes, Lord. Right. Arthur, King of the Britons. Your knights of the round table shall have a task to make them an example in these dark times. Good idea, O oh Lord. Of course it's a good idea. Behold, Arthur, this is the Holy Grail. Look well, Arthur, for it is your sacred task to seek this Grail. That is your purpose, Arthur. The quest for the Holy Grail. A blessing. A blessing from the Lord. God be praised. Okay, so there you go. That's the quest, uh, Arthur's quest to seek the Holy Grail. It's a blessing from the Lord. Okay, so Arthur is sent on a mission by God to find the Holy Grail. And he basically travels around Britain uh, with his faithful servant called Patsy. And Patsy follows him. Uh, now, in in the uh, production of the film, they couldn't afford, because they, they didn't have much money in their budget for this film, they couldn't afford to get horses 
So what they did instead is they had uh, all of the knights that rode around were basically followed by servants who had coconuts, you know, like um, empty coconut shells, and they would use them to simulate the sound of horses. You know, that sound. And it's just these guys running after them with coconut shells just um, doing the sound. It's a great visual joke. Um, so he travels around Britain with his faithful servant, Patsy, and visiting castles and collecting a group of knights who will help him on his quest, on his mission. So really, it's just an excuse to visit lots of old castles and to film a bunch of medieval-themed comedy sketches. Most of the film was um, shot in Scotland, uh, and the scenery is absolutely beautiful. You see some of Britain's most beautiful ancient castles. It's really great. Um, It was filmed on a budget of just $400,000, which is a tiny budget in comparison to today's standards. For example, the, the Hangover 3 which is one of Hollywood's more recent comedy films, The Hangover 3, that had a budget of $103 million. So uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, $400,000. Hangover 3, $103 million. Um, The film was financed uh, partly by rock stars like Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin and Elton John. Um, And um, that's awesome, isn't it? Um, It's now also considered to be one of the funniest uh, British comedy films of all time. And in 2005, it was used by Eric Idle, one of the Pythons. Um, It was used by him as the basis for the Monty Python musical, which is called Spamalot, which you can see in theatres in London and other places around the world. There are a few classic sketches in this film, and I'd like to play uh, one of them for you um, uh, right now, okay, um, okay. So the 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 sketch that we're going to listen to is called Constitutional Peasants, okay. Constitutional Peasants. Um, a peasant is basically a, a poor working class person who works on the land, okay. Now at this time, um, in in this period in British history, um, the way in which the the country was set up w- would be that you would have. Um, probably one king who ruled the entire country or or at least several kings for you know different lords who ruled different parts of the country and they would be they would be based around these castles very important castles um, around the country and the that lord who owned that castle would be in charge of all the land surrounding it Okay, and all the people who lived on that land would kind of work for the king, and they would uh, like give money to the king, and they would basically be the subjects or or sort of um, yeah subjects of the king. Okay, that's how it worked in the tenth century, um, the feudal system they called it. Later on, we got the agricultural system and the industrial system. Uh, and so on. But in those early days, the feudal system, lords who owned castles and owned land and all the people who lived on that land basically worked for the king as the, as the king's servants, all right, or, or the king's subjects, let's say. Um, so in this sketch, the constitutional peasants, um, King Arthur has an argument with some left-wing peasants, all right? So um, Arthur is is travelling around the land, trying to recruit some knights to join him on his quest. He visits lots of castles. In this scene, he's approach- in this scene, he is approaching a castle, and he meets some peasants who are working on the land. The peasants appear to be just collecting mud and filth 
from the floor. I'm not quite sure what they're doing on the land. They just seem to be on the floor, just sort of collecting mud. It's it's uh, it's pretty funny. They're disgusting and they're dirty, and yet surprisingly, they are very articulate in the language of politics, which is part of the joke. Um, King Arthur decides to ask them for information about the owner of the castle. Um, The peasants don't give him any useful information. Instead, he just gets into an argument with one of the peasants about the constitution, uh, about the monarchy, about democratic government, and about the oppression of the masses in an absolute monarchy. So one of the funny things for me about this scene is the anachronism. Now, I'm going to go into that in a moment. I think before I tell you um, some things about this scene and before I teach you all the language that you're going to hear, let me just play the scene to you. Now, I understand that you you might not get it, you might not understand it, you might not be able to hear everything they're saying. Um... It's quite a complicated scene if English isn't your first language. Even if English is your first language, it might be difficult to to understand all the different um, meanings and and things that are going on in this. So it is fairly complex. You can listen to it now. Don't worry if you don't understand everything because I will help you and I'll explain it all and then you'll appreciate it just like a native speaker who understands all of the concepts at work here, okay? So um, you can now listen to Monty Python and the Holy Grail the constitutional peasants scene. Imagine the countryside in medieval Britain. There's a castle in the distance and on the land you've got peasants. I don't know what they're doing. They're collecting dirt. They're just collecting mud. And the king rides in, followed by his servant Patsy, with the uh, coconut shells. And the king says, um, it tries to attract the attention of one of the peasants. The king thinks the peasant is an old, uh, an old woman turns out to be a 37-year-old man, and they get into an argument, and you can listen to it right now. Old woman! Man! Ma'am, sorry. What knight lives in that castle over there? I'm 37. Uh, What? I'm 37. I'm not old. Well, I can't just call you man. You could say Dennis. I didn't know you were called Dennis. Well, you didn't bother to find out, did you? I did say sorry about the old woman, but from behind you looked... What I object to is you automatically treat me like an inferior. Well, I am king. Oh, king, eh? Very nice. And how'd you get that, eh? By exploiting the workers. By hanging on to outdated imperialist dogma which perpetuates the economic and social differences in our society. If there's ever going to be any progress... Dennis, there's some lovely filth down here! Oh, how'd you do? How do you do, good lady? I'm Arthur, King of the Britons. Whose castle is that? King of the who? The Britons. Who are the Britons? Well, we all are. We are all Britons. And I am your king. I didn't know we had a king. I thought we were an autonomous collective. You're fooling yourself. We're living in a dictatorship. A self-perpetuating autocracy in which the working classes... Oh, there you go, bringing class into it again. That's what it's all about. If only people would... Please, please, good people, I am in haste. Who lives in that castle? 
No one lives there. Then who is your lord? We don't have a lord. What? I told you, we're an anarcho-syndicalist commune. We take it in turns to act as a sort of executive officer for the week. Yes. But all the decisions of that officer have to be ratified at a special bi-weekly meeting. Yes, I see. By a simple majority in the case of purely internal affairs. Be quiet. But by a two-thirds majority in the case be of more... Be quiet. Major. I order you to be quiet. Order? Who does he think he is? <laughs> I'm your king. Well, I didn't vote for you. You don't vote for kings. Well, how do you become king, then? The Lady of the Lake, her arm clad in the purest shimmering Samite, held aloft Excalibur from the bosom of the water, signifying by divine providence that I, Arthur, was to carry Excalibur. That is why I'm your king. Listen, strange women lying in ponds distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. Supreme executive power derives from a mandate from the masses, not from some farcical aquatic ceremony. Be quiet! Oh, but you can't expect to wield supreme executive power just because some watery tart threw a sword at you. Shut up! I mean, if I went round saying I was an emperor just because some moistened bint had lobbed a scimitar at me, they'd put me away. Shut up, will you? Shut up! Ah, now we see the violence inherent in the system. Shut up! Oh, come and see the violence inherent in the system! Help, help, I'm being repressed, bloody peasant! Oh, what a giveaway. Did you hear that? Did you hear that, eh? That's what I'm on about. Did you see him repressing me? You saw it, didn't you? Okay. So there you go. That's the uh, constitutional peasants. Now, you might be thinking, oh, 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 I kind of understood some of that. I, I got some of the jokes. Uh, that woman's voice was kind of funny. Uh, but no, it's all a bit fast. Luke, help. OK, don't worry. I'm here. I'm going to help you. Uh, let me just tell you um, a little bit about what I find funny about this sketch. And then I'm going to go into lots of detail about the language and the things that you heard. All right. We will listen to it again. So you'll get another chance. All right. Uh, the video for this uh, sketch is on the, the website, teacherluke.co.uk. Find this episode. You'll see a video that's going to help you if you watch that. There's also a script for that scene uh, on on my page, and you'll be able to, to read that and understand it too. All right. So, um, one of the one of the funny things about this scene for me is the anachronism, right? Anachronism, that's where um, you get uh, one thing... F- okay, uh, anachronism is when... Uh, time doesn't match, okay? For example, in this case, we've got this context of medieval Britain, but then in the middle of it, there's this person, this peasant, who speaks like a modern a modern person with all of the understandings that we now have about modern politics. So that's an, an example of anachronism, something that doesn't fit in the time cons, uh, in the time context, okay? So, so the sort of... Um, the the fact that the time doesn't quite match up is is an anachronism. So in this case, um, you know, the different time periods are kind of mixed up within this sketch. The king is from the medieval period, but the peasants are basically kind of modern working class people um, in, in the way that they speak. So it mixes up people from different time periods. The scene also mixes two different um, speech registers, okay? Two different speech registers. We'll be looking at that in a moment. And also two different political ideologies as the characters represent different political systems and we we then see them arguing with each other. Um, It's kind of unexpected because peasants in the Middle Ages are... uh, Peasants in the Middle Ages were unaware of things like Marxist ideology, and they certainly weren't 
they certainly wouldn't have been even intelligent uh, or educated enough um, to criticise the system in such an articulate way. Um, Arthur speaks in a kind of poetic and medieval way, and he represents the system of absolute monarchy which was in place at the time. The peasant, um, Dennis is his name, the peasant, speaks like a kind of modern left-wing radical, using ideas founded by Karl Marx in the 19th century and uh, other people. It's also a joke about the conventions of movies or stories which are set in medieval times, in which the peasants are always presented as old, dirty and inarticulate servants of the king. You know, very reverential of the king, that kind of thing. But um, when these peasants in this scene speak like Marxists from the modern era, it's quite, it's quite surprising and it's quite an amusing uh, shock, all right? Um, now, I, I realise that, um, you know, I'm explaining this scene and that might mean that, you, you, that the humour is lost, you know, because explaining humour takes all the immediate fun out of it because often really getting a joke or finding something funny happens in an instant. It's not something that you can, you know, take your time over. Either you immediately find it funny or you don't. Um, so if you get the humour in this scene, then good for you. The main thing is that we're learning English here, aren't we? So let's focus on understanding the scene before trying to see the funny side. Uh, this scene is, is very rich in vocabulary, in either a poetic medieval register or the language of, of like left-wing politics. Um, so... Um, so you've listened to it once, and I wonder if you understood it. Um, and now let me explain it to you uh, properly. Um, and if you do find any of it funny, then it, that's a bonus as far as I'm concerned. We will be listening to this sketch again in a moment. So, okay, we've already listened to it. So let me go through some of the vocabulary and explanation um, so that you can get it. Actually, thinking about that, maybe it would be a good idea for you to listen to it again. I mean, because... It's difficult to get it the first time round. And I think if you hear it again, that will give you a chance. That will give you more of a chance to kind of get a grip on this scene. Okay. It's only like, it's just under three minutes long. So it's not, that's not too long. So let's listen to it again and then we'll go into it in, in more detail. Okay. All right. So here we are. Here we are with the constitutional peasants. Ma'am, sorry. What knight lives in that castle over there? I'm 37. Uh, what? I'm 37. I'm not old. Well, I can't just call you ma'am. Well, you could say Dennis. I didn't know you were called Dennis. Well, you didn't bother to find out, did you? I did say sorry about the old woman, but from behind you looked... Well, I object to it. You automatically treat me like an inferior. Well, I am king. Oh, king, eh? Very nice. And how do you get that, eh? By exploiting the workers by hanging on to outdated imperialist dogma which perpetuates the economic and social differences in our society. If there's ever going to be any progress... Dennis, there's some lovely filth down here! Oh, how do you do? How do you do, good lady? I'm Arthur, King of the Britons. Whose castle is that? King of the who? The Britons. Who are the Britons? Well, we all are. We are all Britons. And I am your king. I didn't know we had a king. I thought we were an autonomous collective. You're fooling yourself. We're living in a dictatorship. 
a self-perpetuating autocracy in which the working classes... Oh, there you go, bringing class into it again. Well, that's what it's all about. If only people would... Please, realize... please, good people, I am in haste. Who lives in that castle? No one lives there. Then who is your lord? We don't have a lord. What? I told you, we're an anarcho-syndicalist commune. We take it in turns to act as a sort of executive officer for the week. Yes. But all the decisions of that officer have to be ratified at a special bi-weekly meeting. Yes, I see. By a simple majority in the case of purely internal affairs. Be quiet. But by a two-thirds majority in the case be of more Be quiet. I order you to be quiet. Order? Who does he think he is? <laughs> I am your king. Well, I didn't vote for you. You don't vote for kings. Well, how do you become king, then? The Lady of the Lake, her arm clad in the purest shimmering Samite, held aloft Excalibur from the bosom of the water, signifying by divine providence that I, Arthur, was to carry Excalibur. That is why I'm your king. Listen, strange women lying in ponds distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. Supreme executive power derives from a mandate from the masses, not from some farcical aquatic ceremony. Be quiet! Oh, but you can't expect to wield supreme executive power just because some watery tart threw a sword at you. Shut up! I mean, if I went round saying I was an emperor just because some moistened bint had lobbed a scimitar at me, they'd put me away. Shut up! Will you shut up? Ah, now we see the violence inherent in the system. Shut up! Oh, come and see the violence inherent in the system! Help! Help! I'm being repressed, bloody peasant! Oh, what a giveaway. Did you hear that? Did you hear that, eh? That's what I'm on about. Did you see him repressing me? You saw it, didn't you? Okay, so let's look at vocabulary and uh, vocabulary explanations, all right? So in a nutshell, just in case you you, you didn't get the general um, sort of understanding of what, what happened in that scene, in a nutshell, King Arthur wants to uh, wants to know who lives in the castle. He asks a couple of peasants, but they don't help him. Instead, he gets involved in an irritating argument about the exploitation of the working classes in this um, medieval uh, monarchy. All right? So, f- okay, first of all, it's important to just look at a few concepts. Okay? There are a few concepts which we need to study in order to fully uh, uh, appreciate this scene. So let's look at some of those concepts before listening to the scene again, ultimately, all right? These uh, concepts relate to different constitutional frameworks. I mean, different ways in which a country can be run, different sort of state systems, let's say. So we're talking about political systems, for example, absolute monarchy, um, democracy, uh, Marxism, and also anarchism, all right? So starting with absolute monarchy, what is an absolute monarchy? Well, in, in this case, um, a king, who is the monarch, it could be a queen as well, um, a king is not elected, but uh, gets their supreme power by divine provenance. That means by it's given to them by God. This means that the monarch has a special agreement with God. God has chosen the monarch to be the leader of these people. Usually this is tied to old mythical stories which involve some supernatural intervention in which the king is chosen uh, to be the um, the divine leader uh, by God. All right? In the case of King Arthur, this was when he was given a holy sword, uh, Excalibur, by a magical and mythical woman called the Lady of the Lake. She literally, you know, Arthur arrived at the at this lake and 
in a very amazing moment, um, uh, the Lady of the Lake emerged from the water, um, holding up her hand, holding the sword. In fact, the sword comes out of the water first, and it's revealed that the Lady of the Lake is holding it. This doesn't happen in the film, but this is just part of the story. So, the story goes that this lady is a, is a kind of supernatural and mythical spirit who holds magical and religious authority. In in the story, um, uh, she she walks out of the lake and presents Arthur uh, with the magical sword, which signifies that he is the divine ruler of Britain. Most monarchies justify their existence by suggesting they have some kind of special connection to God. I mean, you see it in societies all around the world, societies that are ruled by um, a royal family or you know, a, a monarch or an autocrat, someone who puts themselves right at the top of society and they, they, they maintain their power by convincing the people that they have some special connection with God. All right. Um, in, in this sketch, Arthur believes that he is the rightful ruler of the Britons because of his divine right given by God. OK, so that's absolute monarchy in its purest form. Um, um, so democracy. Right. Now, in this case, uh, the people give executive power, which basically means decision making power. Uh, the people in the democracy give this executive power to a representative by voting for him or her. Okay, the people give this leader a mandate. A mandate basically means a responsibility, an obligation, and a responsibility to run the country. So it's basically the government by the people, of the people, and for the people. And it's you know maybe one of the most common. Uh, systems that we have in sort of modern developed societies. Churchill said, Winston Churchill said that democracy is not perfect, but it's better than all the alternatives that we have available to us. In the UK today, we have a democratic monarchy, which is a sort of combination between democracy and, and, and monarchy, right? A democratic monarchy, which is basically a democracy because we vote for all of our members of parliament in elections, but with a monarch as the head of state, with almost no executive power. Okay, so the Queen has very, very minor powers, and she doesn't really exercise them. Uh, she doesn't really use her powers. It's like there is, um, it's like there is an understanding between Parliament and the monarchy that the monarchy just lets Parliament run the country. Okay. Um, we we actually had a revolution um, in the 17th century um, when the parliamentarians rose up and fought against the royal family. Uh, the king was captured. He uh, his head was chopped off, and for about 40 years we we ha we basically operated as a kind of republic. Uh, it was known as the English Commonwealth, I believe. That was Oliver Cromwell was the leader. And we, we operated as a sort of republic. But after 40, 40 years, it seemed that the generally in the country, we didn't really like that as a system. We quite enjoyed having a, a, a monarch. And so we actually brought the royal family back. We reinstated a king. Um, that was King Charles II, I believe. I hope I'm right there. Um, so we reinstated a monarch, but um, we changed things. We changed the system a bit at that moment. And uh, the monarch became just the head of state. And most of the executive control and power was was um, held by parliament, by 
um, elected representatives. And these days, of course, you know, uh, men and women um, can vote in elections to choose their their um, their um, representatives in Parliament. Now, it's not a perfect system, but as Churchill said, it's better than uh, the other options. All right. So that's a democracy and a, uh, a democratic monarchy. Um, that democratic monarchy is the way the, that the UK works at the moment. Some people are concerned that uh, Prince Charles um, might decide to exercise his power if or when he becomes king, which could cause a constitutional crisis. But that's another story for another time. The Queen has, you know, agreed that she doesn't really get involved. But we'll see what happens if if Charles becomes king. Um, people are a bit worried that because he's he's opinionated, he might decide to kind of, you know, exercise his limited powers and we'll see what effect that has on the country. But anyway, that's another story for another time. Marxism. Okay. Now, this isn't really a constitutional system, but more a political, it's a political ideology or just a way of understanding the way in which most industrial or post-industrial capitalist systems work, okay? Karl Marx was a German-born philosopher, economist, sociologist and historian who basically stated that the ruling classes managed to maintain control of the system by owning the means of production and that the working classes are therefore dominated and rep- uh, and repressed by this system. And that the only way in which true equality can exist is if the people own their own land and that they own their own factories and they own their own means of producing goods, okay? That they have control of the economic system. Um, Marx's ideas formed the basis of many left-wing political models, including things like communism, and also formed the basis of, of many criticisms of the capitalist system in general. In the UK, we sometimes associate Marxist ideologies with certain types of people, um, people who, although their views may be valid, I think most sort of many ordinary people in the UK find Marxists sort of, you know, these political radicals to be a little bit extreme and even sometimes a bit boring, you know, just banging on about politics and the class system all the time while not necessarily doing anything about it. Personally, me, myself, I read uh, about Marx at university I think it's an it's incredibly astute um, criticism of the capitalist system. It doesn't necessarily present a viable alternative, but I think Karl Marx really managed to understand something really crucial about the way in which you know modern capitalist systems work. Obviously, his his uh, ideas have been mod- uh, modified over the years, but Marx is the the, the kind of the basis of it. Now, um, the next concept is anarchism anarchism. Uh, This is the idea that there should be no leaders at all, and in fact no formalised system of government or state at all. Instead, local communities should be run by free and open groups with no leader. The idea is that formalised governments or power structures are essentially corrupting, Uh, which means that when power is given to one or several representatives, elected or not, that this ultimately will corrupt them and that this leads to inequality. So the idea is that that any system system is innately sort of bad because it leads to 
uh, hierarchies and corruption, okay? So anarchists argue that there should be no system at all and that people should be free to just govern themselves in a completely open way without adopting um, any kind of political ideology or any kind of dogma, okay? Now, for me, in principle, this, this sounds great, but on a practical level, it sounds kind of chaotic, confusing, and impractical. Ultimately, it would be great to remove the corrupting power of government, but are we, are we really ready for it? You know, um, we would definitely need an intelligent and activated uh, population. Um, education is key to make something like this work. Um, the problem, to an extent, is that many people just don't really care about these issues and instead just, just find political discussions to be boring which therefore makes it hard for true anarchy to take effect. Because for true anarchy to work, you'd need all the, the members of the population to take a, an active interest in the way things are run. Um, and the, everyone would need to communicate really well. It would have to be incredibly organised. Everyone would have to have the same sort of views um, in order for it to work. Because otherwise, you know, the thing is that with any... Uh, system or anti-system or whatever um there's always the organizational aspect you need to be so communicatively competent to make something like anarchy work effectively and often people don't communicate very well and as a result you need sort of one person or a group of people to kind of take control because otherwise it would be chaos that that's the sort of argument against anarchy that it would just be chaotic um so um, uh, it's a bit like Marxism in the way that many people find anarchists to be either kind of boring or confusing or even somehow threatening to, you know, ordinary normal life. OK, so th those are some concepts that uh, it's important to understand or that we can learn about by looking at this this um, scene from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Right now, let's look at vocabulary. So. So we've looked at some ideolo ideological concepts at the heart of this sketch, but we're not finished because there's plenty of language to deal with too. It's complex, isn't it? It's complicated. You see, British comedy, when it's good, is really intelligent and it's very deep, particularly Monty Python. Monty Python were, you know, marked by a certain level of intelligence. I mean, these were clever guys. They went to Oxford and Cambridge universities. These are really intellectual guys who decided to mix this kind of intellectual rigour with sort of ridiculous comedy. That's why I love it so much, that it's fun, it mocks everything, and yet at the same time, they come at these subjects from a very intelligent place. All right? So it just shows, doesn't it, that British comedy is really... Um, complex and intelligent and deep it's not just weird stuff it's not just oh this just this is british comedy um it's not just weird abstract stuff it's actually very complicated and it, it means something all right so um here is some vocabulary that you should know in order to understand this sketch uh, further um, remember also that Arthur speaks in old-fashioned language and that Dennis the peasant speaks like a modern man with radical political opinions. So um, you should... Um, but yeah, okay, all right, fine. So um, what 
Okay, let's go through some of the language. I think what I'm going to do is take you through the sketch again, and we are going to focus on specific bits of language as they come up, okay? Um, you'll see on the website that I've written some of this stuff down, and I've highlighted some of the key words that I'm looking at here. Um, so every now and then I'll pause the recording and then go through some bits of language uh, with you, okay? All right, so let's start again. Ma'am, sorry. What knight lives in that castle over there? I'm 37. Uh, what? I'm 37. I'm not old. Well, I can't just call you ma'am. You could say Dennis. I didn't know you were called Dennis. Well, you didn't bother to find out, did you? I did say sorry about the old woman, but from behind you looked... What I object to is you automatically treat me like an inferior. All right, what I object to is that you automatically treat me like an inferior. So that's, that's how the argument begins. What I object to is that you automatically treat me like an inferior. Okay, so to treat someone like something. You know that expression? Don't treat me like an idiot. Meaning don't sort of talk to me or deal with me as if I'm an idiot. Don't treat me like an idiot. Don't treat me like a fool. You know, um... You know, for example, I'm a bit worried about Jane because I don't think her boyfriend treats her very well, meaning that uh, he's, you know, he's a bit nasty to her. He's not very kind. He treats her badly. Okay, so um, you automatically treat me like an inferior. Uh, in this case, the, uh, uh, Dennis is complaining that Arthur treats him like an inferior. An inferior is someone who is kind of lower in status than than him but of course arthur treats him like an, an inferior because he is the king after all so what i object to is the fact that you automatically treat me like an inferior am king oh king a eh? very nice and how do you get that eh by exploiting the workers right well i am king oh king a eh? very nice and how do you get that then eh by exploiting the workers so there's the word exploit, which you should know. Um, exploiting means to sort of benefit unfairly from the work of someone else, typically by, for example, overworking someone or underpaying someone. You know, you might say women are exploited in the workplace. Um, in some, sometimes um, in film, we say that, you know, filmmakers exploit their audience, meaning that the audience uh, might... Um, there's certain types of movie, like exploitation films, which tend to focus on, on one particular kind of audience, like an audience that likes violence, so the, the movie makers will just make violent films in order to exploit people's um, enjoyment of violence. Anyway, that's exploitation cinema, but in this context, exploiting workers means... Um, for example, making making them work too hard and not paying them enough, exploiting workers. Okay, uh, how you know? So I am king. Yeah, king. Oh, very good. How did you get that? By exploiting the workers. Yeah. All right. That eh? By exploiting the workers, by hanging on to outdated imperialist dogma, which perpetuates the economic and social differences in our society. Right. By hanging on to outdated imperialist dogma, which perpetuates the economic and social differences in our society. Can you repeat that? 
By hanging on to outdated imperialist dogma which perpetuates the economic and social differences in our society. Well done if you can repeat that, by the way. Um, So, by hanging on to something. Hanging on to something means keeping, holding on to it. In this case, holding on to outdated imperialist dogma. Outdated imperialist dogma. Outdated means that it doesn't apply anymore. It's old-fashioned. It's outdated. Imperialist, that's the um, adjective that we associate with the being, you know, uh, empire, imper- um, imperial, imperialist dogma. So this is, um, dogma is, is like ideology or an I- a, uh, a set of, of principles or ideas which is laid down by an authority as completely true. For example, we talk about religious dogma. That means um, principles in a religion which are just stated to be true. Uh, rules, religious rules, for example, for example, all right? In this case, it's imperialist dogma. That's a set of principles which defines um, the uh, rule of a monarch, okay? Um, So, outdated imperialist dogma, this means that um, the ideas that underpin a monarchy are out of date. So, Dennis is saying, how do you get How do you get your power? You get it by exploiting the workers and by hanging on to old-fashioned ideas which um, are at the heart of uh, uh, this monarchist system, all right? Uh, Ideas which perpetuate the economic and social differences in our society. So to perpetuate differences, to perpetuate something means to uh, allow something to continue, to make it carry on. Um, okay, so um, you hold on to this um, this system of monarchy, which somehow perpetuates uh, the social differences in our society. This is one of the key arguments against having a monarchy. People say that if you have a monarchy in pl- in place, that that somehow um, encourages or perpetuates social differences. For example, it um, establishes a class system. It prevents people from being able to change their their status in society. That's an argument uh, against monarchy, all right? So, um, Dennis is, is explaining in very articulate terms how he disagrees with the, uh, the monarchy that King Arthur represents, okay? Um, and at this point, I think Dennis is wife i assume it's dennis's wife played by terry uh terry jones he's played by a man he's a jerry terry jones was very good at playing women and he sort of spoke in this voice you know all the pythons whenever they uh needed a woman they they would ask uh, they would well one of them would play the woman terry jones was the best at it and he he did this sort of old woman's voice very well so at this point i think terry jones as dennis's wife pipes in and she says something like dennis there's some lovely filth down here if there's ever going to be any progress there's some lovely filth down here dennis there's some lovely filth down here so filth basically means dirt mud muck because remember they're they're on the ground like working on the on the land just carrying bits of dirt and mud and filth around because they're dirty peasants aren't they dennis there's some lovely filth down here so she's found some really good filth um so she doesn't realize that uh, dennis is speaking to king arthur at this point oh how'd you do how do you do good lady I- notice that how do you do the response is how do you do okay remember that 
Oh, how do you do? It's very formal. It's quite old-fashioned now. We don't say it so much, but remember that. How do you do? The response is not, I'm fine, thanks. No. It's, how do you do? Oh, how do you do? Okay, how do you do? How do you do? Um, all right. Okay. Oh, good lady. I'm Arthur, King of the Britons. Whose castle is that? King of the who? The Britons. Who are the Britons? Well, we all are. We are all Britons. And I am your king. I didn't know we had a king. I thought we were an autonomous collective. I didn't know we had a king. I didn't know we had a king. I thought we were an autonomous collective. So an autonomous collective basically just means a kind of free society. Um, A collective means like, let's say, a group. Okay, a group. So she thought that they existed in uh, a self-governing or independent group. So it seems that King Arthur has discovered um, that this these people who live near this castle are basically anarchists and they don't have a lord. They are an autonomous collective. Okay. Um, all right. So at this point, um, the king gets dragged down into some sort of constitutional argument. Fooling yourself. We're living in a autonomous collective. You're fooling yourself. We're living in a dictatorship. A self-perpetuating autocracy in which the working classes... Okay, so you're fooling yourself. She she thinks that they're in an autonomous collective, but Dennis uh, is more paranoid than that, and he believes that uh, they're being exploited in some kind of dictatorship. He says, you're fooling yourself. If you fool yourself, it means that um, you're, 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 you're wrong, and yet you're not aware that you're wrong, uh, which makes you an idiot. You're fooling yourself. We're living in, in a dictatorship. So a dictatorship, of course, is, is a, a society which is ruled by one dictator. Um, he says you're living in a dictatorship a self-perpetuating autocracy an autocracy is basically a dictatorship it's a system of government uh, with one person in absolute power a self-perpetuating one means that this system allows itself to continue all right a self-perpetuating autocracy in which the working classes and he's he's about to go off on another rant but uh, his wife stops him saying something like, oh, there you go again, bringing class into it. So um, bringing class into it again, um, which is a typical thing that someone might say in a political argument in Britain, because class is something that always comes up in these sorts of discussions and arguments. Oh, there you go, bringing class into it again. So people get rather tired of hearing people in arguments uh, referring to the class system, but it always happens. So she's getting annoyed. Oh, there you go, bringing class into it. If you bring something into an argument, it means you just introduce that topic into the argument. The working classes... Oh, there get- you go, bringing class into it again. Well, that's what it's all about. If only people would... Please, realize- please, good people, I am in haste. Who lives in that castle? Please, good people, I am in haste. So this is King Arthur, and uh, clearly he he speaks in this more um, sort of medieval, formal way. I am in haste. If you are in haste, it means that you're in a hurry. So please, good people, I am in haste, meaning I am in a hurry. Who lives in that castle? Um, and then Dennis then pitches in again, uh, saying something like, I told you we're an, ar- we're an anarcho-syndicalist commune. We're an anarcho-syndicalist commune. Oh, my goodness. All right. Anarcho-syndicalist. Anarcho from, from anarchy. 
syndicalist a syndicate is basically a group of people who work together for the benefit of everyone uh, a group of people who get together to work for the benefit of all the people in that group so again it's a kind of it's another word for a self-governing community an anarcho-syndicalist commune you can see that the 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 language of this kind of uh, radical politics uh, i mean discussions of, of radical politics often get bogged down in lots of um, complex vocabulary which is one of the problems of um, this movement this political movement that it's it's bogged down in terminology and um and 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 that doesn't help it it's kind of why it's it's difficult to make uh, anarchism work because it involves all this complicated language in order to try and uh you know keep it all organized and and that's kind of alienating and it's boring isn't it um i told you we're an anarcho-syndicalist commune we take it in turns to act as a sort of executive officer for the week so at this point dennis then starts to lecture king arthur about their anarcho-syndicalist system which involves them taking it in turns to act as an executive officer for the week so you know what to take it in turns means right it means that uh, you know first it's my turn then it's your turn then it's his turn so we take it in turns all right let's take it in turns all right um they take it in turns to act as a sort of executive officer for the week the executive officer would be sort of you know someone with a responsibility to make decisions a kind of chairperson for example uh, but all the decisions of that officer have to be ratified at a special bi-weekly meeting all right so um, if if the executive officer makes a decision that decision has to be ratified so if something is ratified it basically means that um, the group has to agree they have to give some kind of formal consent by signing an agreement like a treaty or a contract something like that so um, treaties get ratified so if the if the european union or something like that makes a treaty then everyone has to sign it and then the treaty is ratified it means it's officially agreed okay um so um uh, all the decisions of that officer have to be ratified at a special bi-weekly meeting bi-weekly um meaning um every two weeks okay and arthur's like yes yes i see and he says uh, it has to be um uh, ratified by a simple majority in the case of purely internal affairs uh but by a two-thirds majority in the case of more major and then he gets interrupted all right so okay some more language here um so it has to be ratified by a simple majority for internal affairs and a two-thirds majority for other affairs all right simple majority so there's different types of majority in a meeting okay a simple majority this is when like um uh one okay if in the example of an election if there's a simple majority it means that one candidate receives more votes than everyone else all right but he, he doesn't have to get more than 50 percent he just gets more votes than other people for example if obama uh, bush and clinton are in an election and clinton gets 40 percent 
and Obama and Bush get 30% each, then Clinton gets the simple majority. She just gets more votes than, than the others. That's a simple majority. Then a two-thirds majority, that means at least 66% of all the votes. That's a two-thirds majority. And then an absolute majority would be a 51%, at least 51% of all the votes cast. Right. Okay. Now, if you're thinking, oh my God, this is boring and this is giving me a headache, don't worry. That's a completely natural reaction. And in fact, that is that understanding is at the center of, of this sketch that, um, that it's a criticism of the sort of anarcho-syndicalist system that Dennis is talking about, that it gets rather confusing when you start dealing with all the rules and regulations of how these things get managed. Um, and okay, so the woman then interrupts and because she, she's interested in Arthur. and She says, so how did you become king? And Arthur then goes on to talk about the uh, mystical ceremony in which the Lady of the Lake gave him Excalibur. I am in haste. Who lives in that castle? No one lives there. Then who is your lord? We don't have a lord. What? I told you, we're an anarcho-syndicalist commune. We take it in turns to act as a sort of executive officer for the week. Yes. But all the decisions of that officer have to be ratified at a special bi-weekly meeting. Yes, I see. By a civil majority in the case of purely internal affairs. Be quiet. But by a two-thirds majority in the case be of more Be quiet. I order you to be quiet. Order? Who does he think he is? <laughs> I'm your king. Well, I didn't vote for you. You don't vote for kings. Well, how do you become king, then? The Lady of the Lake, her arm clad in the purest shimmering Samite, held aloft Excalibur from the bosom of the water, signifying by divine providence that I, Arthur, was to carry Excalibur. That is why I'm your king. All right, uh, so... Let me go through that that speech, which is uh, which is accompanied by the sound of angels um, uh, singing. Uh, the Lady of the Lake, her arm clad in the purest shimmering samite. So um, clad that means basically dressed. Her arm was was dressed in um, samite. Okay, clad. Okay, clad in cotton, clad in silk, clad in armor. It's old-fashioned language. If if someone is clad in armour, it just means they're wearing armour. Clad basically means wearing, okay? So her arm, clad in the purest shimmering samite. Samite is um, a rich silk fabric interwoven with gold and silver threads used for dressmaking and decoration in the Middle Ages. So it's a kind of beautiful fabric made of gold, silver, and, and, and silk, okay? Um, so her arm, uh, clad in the purest shimmering Samite, held aloft Excalibur. So held aloft means she held it up, okay? Held aloft means up. Um, uh, her, her arm held aloft Excalibur from the bosom of the water, from the bosom of the water basically means from the middle of the water, from the sort of, um, like from the heart of the water, okay? Bosom is actually the chest, like a woman's chest. So it's sort of like from the, um, the, the, the yeah, it's like saying from the heart of the water. Uh, uh, she held up Excalibur from the bosom of the water, signifying by divine providence that I, Arthur, was to carry Excalibur. Divine providence is like God-given right. Uh, that I am, I, uh, I was to carry Excalibur. That is why I'm your king. 
Harry Excalibur. That is why I'm your king. Listen, strange women lying in ponds distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. Right. Strange women lying in ponds distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. Supreme executive power derives from a mandate from the masses, not from some farcical aquatic ceremony. Okay. Strange women lying in in ponds distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. Supreme executive power derives from a mandate from the masses. So, meaning supreme executive power derives from, meaning uh, comes from, uh, a mandate from the masses. A mandate, as we said earlier, is basically a, um, a, a right given or responsibility given to a leader uh, by the people. The masses means all of the people. Okay, um, not from some farcical aquatic ceremony. Um, aquatic means like water-based or underwater uh, a ceremony. So it's like some aquatic ceremony. A farcical aquatic ceremony. Farcical means ridiculous, basically. So he's saying, look, supreme executive power comes from uh, the, the, the mandate from the people, not from some stupid aquatic ceremony. Um, and then he goes on to say, I mean, if, if I went around saying I was an emperor just because some moistened bint had, had lobbed a scimitar at me, they'd put me away. If I went around saying I was an emperor because some woman threw a sword at me, they would put me in prison. All right. Um, but he says, just because some moistened bint, uh, a bint is like a woman, but it's a sort of fairly derogatory term for a woman. A bint is like a bird, you know, it's, it's just sort of like a slang word for a woman. It's not too rude, but it's not very nice. It's not sexual, really. It's just not very nice. Um, it, but it's not as nice as some other rude words, like, for example, the word bitch or slut. Those are much more offensive words. A bint is more like just like a stupid woman. Okay, um, so um, just because some moistened bint, moistened is just another word for wet. She's wet because she was in the lake. Okay, um, just because some moistened bint had lobbed a scimitar at me. So lobbed means thrown. Scimitar is another word for a sword. So all these synonyms, right? It's just loads of synonyms. Just become just because some moistened bint had, th- had lobbed a scimitar at me. Uh, they'd put me away to put uh, if he says they'd put me away that means that they meaning the authorities maybe doctors maybe police would put him away in prison or put him away in a mental hospital or something Um, all right let's have a listen to that women lying in ponds distributing swords is no basis for a system of government Supreme executive power derives from a mandate from the masses, not from some farcical aquatic ceremony. Be quiet! But you can't expect to wield supreme executive power just because some watery tart threw a sword at you. Shut up! I mean, if I went round saying I was an emperor just because some moistened bint had lobbed a scimitar at me, they'd put me away. Shut up! Will you shut up? Ah, now we see the violence inherent in the system. Right, so at this point, Arthur is, like, actually grabbing the peasant and shaking him because he's so annoyed with him, because he's so annoying. Shut up! Will you please shut up? And then uh, Dennis is going, oh, yeah, oh, now you can see the violence inherent in the system. 
violence inherent in the system. He's, he's saying that violence is an integral part of the system. All right, now you can see the violence inherent in the system. Help, help, I'm being repressed. Being repressed. Um, um, uh, if people are repressed, it means that they are held down. They're prevented from. Um, f- they're prevented from being free. They're they're repressed, held down. Okay, look, look, help! I'm being repressed. And Arthur goes, "Bloody peasant!" as a way of expressing his irritation. Are you bloody peasant! And Dennis goes, "Oh, oh, what a giveaway! What a giveaway!" If something is a giveaway, it's something that reveals something else. It gives something away. It reveals something else. In this case, uh, 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 King Arthur just gave away. He just revealed the fact that actually he hates the peasants and he disrespects them. So, oh, what a giveaway. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? That's what I'm talking about. In fact, he says, that's what I'm on about. That's what I'm on about. If you're on about something, it means you're talking about it. All right. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm on about. Did you see him repressing me? You saw it, didn't you? Okay. And that's the end of the, the sketch there. Oh, oh, come and see the violence inherent in the system. Help, help. I'm being repressed, bloody peasant. Oh, what a giveaway. Did you hear that? Did you hear that, eh? That's what I'm on about. Did you see him repressing me? You saw it, didn't you? Okay, right. So what I, what I love about this is... is um, it's 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 a it's a very well written script with different types of english and it manages to mock both the idea of a medieval monarchy but also the just the irritate irritating verbosity of political radicals uh, monty python are making fun of history and they're also like taking the piss out of everyone while at the same time celebrating the language it's it's this is it's complex language delivered at speed by colourful characters. And this is at the heart of the humour in this sketch. Okay, now let's move on. Finally, I know that this is, um, this is dragging on a little bit. But finally, let's just look at some intonation and sentence stress. Now, I really enjoy the performances in this scene particularly Michael Palin, who plays Dennis, the peasant. The lines are delivered with quite exaggerated and, char- uh, and characterful intonation and sentence stress. So to highlight this, I'm going to try and read the script of this scene just to make it a bit clearer. Okay, and now we're focusing on the intonation, all right? We're focusing on the intonation and the sentence stress. So listen to me doing it. I'm going to try and sort of... Um, highlight the intonation patterns and the stress so listen to it with me and if you want to um if you're at home you know if you're in front of the computer and you've got control of the audio um you can pause uh, you can pause it and try and repeat it after me okay bear in mind also that dennis speaks with a sort of slightly working class london accent Okay, it's not exactly Cockney, but it's that sort of London accent. You can hear it in the way that he doesn't fully pronounce every single word. And that Arthur speaks in an old-fashioned, posh, received pronunciation voice. And Dennis's wife, the woman... Well, she sort of speaks like that, doesn't she? <laughs> I don't expect you to do that impression, but you can try if you want to. Uh, right, so let's, uh, let's start. Old woman, man, man, sorry, what knight lives in that castle over there? I'm 37. What? I'm 37. I'm not old. Well, I can't just call you man. Well, you could say Dennis. Well, I didn't know you were called Dennis. Well, you didn't bother to find out, did you? 
I did say sorry about the old woman, but from behind you looked... What I object to is that you automatically treat me like an inferior. Well, I am king. Oh, king, yeah, very nice. How did you get that, eh? By exploiting the workers, by hanging on to outdated imperialist dogma, which perpetuates the economic and social differences in our society. If there's any, if there's ever going to be any progress with the... Dennis, there's some lovely filth down here. Oh, how do you do? How do you do, good lady? I am Arthur, king of the Britons. Whose castle is that? King of the who? The Britons. Who are the Britons? Well, we all are. We are all Britons. And I am your king. I didn't know we had a king. I thought we were an autonomous collective. You're fooling yourself. We're living in a dictatorship. A self-perpetuating autocracy in which the working classes... Oh, there you go, bringing class into it again. That's what it's all about. If only people were aware of... Please, please, good people, I am in haste. Who lives in that castle? No one lives there. Then who is your lord? We don't have a lord. What? I told you, we're an an anarcho-syndicalist commune. We take it in turns to act as a sort of executive officer for the week. But all the decisions of that officer have to be ratified at a special bi-weekly meeting by a simple majority in the case of purely internal affairs, but by a two-thirds majority in the case of more major... Be quiet! I order you to be quiet! Order, eh? Who does he think he is? I am your king! Well, I didn't vote for you! You don't vote for kings? Well, how do you become king, then? The Lady of the Lake... Her arm, clad in the purest, shimmering Samite, held aloft Excalibur from the bosom of the water, signifying by divine providence that I, Arthur, was to carry Excalibur. That is why I'm your king. Listen, strange women lying in ponds distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. Supreme executive power derives from a mandate from the masses, not from some farcical aquatic ceremony. Be quiet! Well, but you can't expect to wield supreme executive power just because some watery tart threw a sword at you. Shut up! I mean, if I went round saying I was an emperor just because some moistened bint had lobbed a scimitar at me, they'd put me away. Shut up, will you? Will you please shut up? Oh, oh, now, now see the violent inherent in the system. Come and see the violence inherent in the system. Help, help, I'm being repressed. Bloody peasant. Oh, what a giveaway. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? That's what I'm on about. Did you see him repressing me? You saw it, didn't you? That's the end of uh, this episode of Luke's English Podcast. And um, I think that's probably uh, it. I think we're on about an hour and 15 minutes, something like that. Um, Let me again suggest that you visit teacherluke.co.uk, as I always do. But uh, it'll be worth it if you do. Visit teacherluke.co.uk and you'll see a script for that scene. And um, you'll also see a video. You'll also see some uh, vocabulary definitions and so on. Um, And it's just a very nice place to be, isn't it? Uh, Teacherluke.co.uk. Of course it is. Right. I think I'm going to just draw this episode to a close now. No more rambling. 
Um, just a simple, clear-cut ending in which I don't go on and on and on like I normally do. I'm just going to stop, okay, any any minute now. I think I think that's probably an appropriate thing to do. Why go? Why say any more? I've said so much already. There's no need to, to, you know, add anything at this point. I mean, if I did do that, it would just be me rambling on and on. And the, I mean, that's not what you need now. And if anything, you probably had a bit of you know, you've had a bit too much at this point. But uh, so that's why I've decided that I should really stop talking to you now. And and so I, I'm 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 literally looking at the, the the pause button, and I'm gonna I'm gonna press that in a, in a minute because you you don't you don't necessarily need any any more of this now, do you? I mean, I could just keep going on and on and on for hours. I mean, who's going to benefit from that? Obviously, there is possibly some benefit to be taken from listening to me talking. I mean, obviously, it's you know it's a good example of spoken English, and if you ever were in a situation in which you had to just keep talking without any sense of where you would have to stop. I mean, this would be, I suppose, a good model for that. And you can also hear just bits of English coming through uh, the speaker. And it's, you know, it's all English, isn't it? It's all there, active, natural English actually happening in front of your actual face coming through your real ears, which are attached to the sides of your head, which hopefully is attached to your neck, which also hopefully is attached to the rest of your body, you know, between the shoulder blades there and the thorax and the stomach and all the other parts of your anatomy, which uh, are essential parts of uh, the human body, all of which come together in a very magical, very special way to allow you not only to understand and listen to episodes of Luke's English Podcast, but also to click uh, the subscribe button on iTunes and click other things that might help you in your quest to improve your uh, British English and that genuinely is it now for this episode. So thanks again for listening to Luke's English Podcast. For now, it's goodbye. Thanks for listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this episode of Luke's English Podcast, consider signing up for Luke's English Podcast Premium. You'll get regular premium episodes with stories, vocabulary, grammar and pronunciation teaching from me and the usual moments of humour and fun. Plus, with your subscription, you will be directly supporting my work and making this whole podcast project possible. For more information about Luke's English Podcast Premium, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash premium info.